0: Is politics a bit boring for you at the moment? And do you experience that as a relief from the circus that it's sometimes been? Well, enjoy the respite, but let's not be lulled into thinking there's consensus where there's not. Someone once told me, There's a saying in 12-step addiction programs that while you're in recovery, your addiction is working out and getting stronger in preparation for when you eventually slip up. And I feel a bit that way about the forces of chaos, of populism, of authoritarianism and misinformation. They're getting stronger while we are coasting along going, oh, actually, things seem sort of okay right now. That's not supposed to be a downer. It's supposed to be an exhortation for us to continue to aspire to have the sorts of conversations that will yield the best possible future for all of us. And that's what today's show is about, about understanding what's going on while the waters are calm, about the conversations we need to not relax into ceasing to have. Gee, that was a lot of negatives, wasn't it? We need to not not have. We need to have. There you go. That's simpler, isn't it? Just because the waters are momentarily calm doesn't mean we should let our guard down, and whatever grievances gave rise to things like Donald Trump and Brexit and nationalism and authoritarianism the world over still need to be addressed, even if to do so is sometimes unpleasant, sometimes confronting, and often, yes, I went there, uncomfortable. Today on the show, it's one of those rare occasions where I read an article or two by someone I've never heard of and go, oh my goodness, this person is so brilliant, I have to get them on the blower. Now, this one was recorded, funnily enough, before the US election. And David Roth, my guest today, had written a couple of articles about Donald Trump. And I I wanted to interview him to understand his thinking about populism, Donald Trump's brain and what the few, what the next 4 years would hold even if Donald Trump uh, lost the election. And I've been sitting on it because I just haven't felt that it's quite the right time for us to analyze or psychoanalyze who Donald Trump is in the first 100 days of the Biden administration. I wanted to give it a bit of breathing room and who wants to go back and get their hands dirty meddling around in the gray matter of a man whose personality is so noxious. But it's time. It's time now, because it's time to understand what Donald Trump represented and what the people who follow him are currently thinking about the Biden administration and are currently thinking about the medium to long term future of the United States. David Roth is a sports writer. He was the co-author of the Wall Street Journal's sports blog. And then he was a senior editor at Deadspin. Uh, he resigned along with a large portion of Deadspin's staff in at the end of 2019. This, was a, this sent huge shockwaves through American media because they were basically dissatisfied with the fact that they had been told to stick to writing about sports, even though his political commentary was often what people came to the website to read. So he went off and created his own thing, Defector Media, which he's now the co-owner of. And his insights about Donald Trump are both useful because they're true and also useful because I disagree with them in some ways. And you'll hear in this conversation that we have big disagreements about the nature of wokeness and the relevance of cancel culture and things like that. But I wanted to bring you this conversation. It is understandably out of date by now. We didn't even know whether or not Donald Trump was going to be winning the election. But all of the things that we're talking about are much bigger themes that have endured not only between the recording of this last October and today, but will continue to be relevant for many years to come. I hope you enjoy as much as I did this conversation with David Roth. Basically, I left New York, and then the chrysalis opened, and, I, and the butterfly flew away from New York City, and uh, the, whole, yeah. the whole life cycle of the, you know, the foreigner in New York had been accomplished.
1: I gotta say, man, your timing was impeccable. Like it, re- uh. <laughs> it really worked out pretty good. I mean, I know obviously you guys have had a. A rough go of it this year too but yeah it's been it's nothing uh, like
0: it though it's nothing i mean like i I'd said i felt almost bad after i just sent you that text message saying i was popping downstairs to get coffee because i was like yeah if you're in new york that must sound weird
1: weird i had i mean you you can you can't stay there but yeah i was i mean Envious is not exactly the word, but part of it was like, because you're up at seven in the morning to talk to me. Like, obviously, there's you're not mm. exactly winning in this scenario, but <laughs> man, it would be nice to be able to go downstairs and do that. Like, my
0: uh, my twins are now three years old, so getting up before seven is really not a problem. That's oh, just the yeah, way see, life is, is.
1: Yeah, for us not having kids, it's definitely different, yeah. like being able to, like, we had this, we finally got to see my sister this weekend, you know, like, it's harder to do, but we we got to do it. She's out in Queens. Yeah. And, you know, we got there 10 in the morning and stuff, and we're very much in need of coffee. And they're like, oh, yeah, we had coffee like three hours
0: ago, man. It's like, this is not... <laughs> like, it's, it's basically lunchtime to us. That's right, yeah. Well, I mean, I work in radio, and so when I look at some of the radio shifts at a lot of the radio stations in, uh, in Australia, you know, they'll have like a 5.30 to sort of 8 a.m. Uh, breakfast shift, which is like a big, powerful shift. Uh, they talk about how the 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. block is the most listened to hour of the day. And before I had kids, I was like... Who? Who yeah, are right. these people? Like, who are all these people perfect... who are up before eight? Like, I mean, you yeah. know, I'll get up at nine, have my, have my coffee before 10, and then I just love being a night owl. So it is a shock to the system.
1: Yeah, I think like that degree of like upending your life to do stuff like that. And, you know, it's the same thing here with TV and radio and whatnot. It's just like, I don't, I can't imagine. What kind of opportunity it would take for me to, you know, undo 40 years of just living irresponsibly in exactly the same way (laughs) (laughs) to suddenly be a guy who's in like hair and makeup at six is... Yeah, well, luck- luckily no one's offering. So, you get,
0: uh, <laughs> that's right. hey, someday I'm holding out hope for you, David. Uh, and I, I mean, even part- just even just like late night television. You know, I used to watch Letterman every night, and I'm, and now I'm like, when does uh, when did Letterman start? Maybe like ten or nine thirty or something. Eleven thirty five. Oh my goodness, I'm in. I'm in oh yeah, I had that. By then. Yeah, I
1: was a big Conan O'Brien mm, watcher in high mm, school, and that mm. was like you know the weirdest. In the same way that like I was drawn to Letterman because it was. Like the beats were in all these different places that I hadn't incurred, you know, like encountered before. And with Conan, it was very similar. But like, I think that that actually impacted my studies in a way. Like, obviously, my laziness was like the biggest <laughs> factor yeah. in yeah. my grades. But like, that show started at twelve thirty-five a.m. and I would at least watch through like the first, you know, sort of celebrity guest and go to bed at, you know, whatever. Yeah. What seemed. Like which is not uh like conducive to
0: getting to school on time no. or performing <laughs> at a high level there. No, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Conan was doing the same thing, I think, ten years later that, that Letterman had been doing. But I you know, when I was sort of fourteen, Letterman was the was the god. And uh so... so funny, dude. I still remember the first time that I saw his stuff, I was probably like
1: high school uh age. But it was just like there was something about uh, like, the long pauses, mm. and, like, just in general, the, the way that he was kind of, like, milking the awkwardness of the moment yeah. as if he was in control of it. Like, as somebody who felt awkward, you know, at times, and also, you know, wanted to be funny, the idea of, like, leaning into the weirdness and yeah. stiltedness of a scenario, and then, like, <laughs> somehow taking the the guide hand on it and like knowing what you're doing mm. was you don't want to say inspiring exactly because he was still sitting behind a desk being like paul have you heard about this like it wasn't no profound. it was
0: inspiring to me it was profound yeah. to me it was I, th- I think you put your finger on exactly that the right uh balance or the paradox of what made letterman and 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 other greats great i mean i think carson had a bit of this as well <clears throat> excuse me of seeming of of allowing things to get right up to the edge of being awkward uh, but but knowing exactly when to pull them back so that you've got a combination of someone who's an outsider and an insider who's, who is a fish out of water, but also a master of their space.
1: Yeah, it's funny, you know, because, like, I think of when I, you know, with comedy, I, there's an element of it when it doesn't work that can feel not oppressive, but, like, really confrontational in kind of an annoying way, like as if somebody's just sort of, like, grabbing you by the lapels and shouting jokes into your face. Mm. And there's something about the... Uh, the that type of command, like a softer and a little bit more, like sort of a different type of mastery, as opposed to just like wowing you with their virtuosity, but like you know, managing the scenario without seeming to dominate it is really mm. like
0: I don't know. It's and, hard to, and, to and do. Well, like, I mean, I think there was something. There was another component to Letterman that you're reminding me of, which was his kind of misanthropy, his sort his just general distaste for everything, his yeah. obvious condescension towards the celebrities he had uh he just I, I think also that appealed to my australianness a bit that, that you know some, a lot of american content can smell to cynical australian mm-hmm. ears and eyes a little bit twee and overly I'm sure optimistic and kind of cheesy uh you know fallon is the perfect exemplar of this kind of yeah. annoying happy like i'm just having a great time let's all just get along yeah, and there was something selling so dark these crazy about...
1: laughs at
0: every you know yeah, whatever yeah. banal like that's celebrity right.
1: story from the set
0: that's right and and now that's gotten ramped up by the YouTubeification and the viralification of of everything but you know when you used to have to actually sit down and watch letterman make a celebrity squirm and you could see how dark his soul was yes. it was great it was great yeah anyway i nice know let...
1: that 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 also worked as well for somebody who didn't grow up in new jersey That
0: there is yeah. like a big no, a brotherhood was... of people who are slightly yeah. a little bit pissed off <laughs> <laughs> that's right i mean he was the hero of everyone who wasn't the cool kid in class I yeah think.
1: yeah yeah it's definitely like a, a whatever uh, something kind of uh, whatever it's hard because he wound up being kind of a, a turd of a guy and so it feels uh strange mm. to talk about the idea that he was like an influence on you as a as a person because like I don't know. I think I'm a lot better husband than he is. Yeah. But uh, yeah, but whatever. <laughs> well, he, presumably he, if he, if he, you're he, not
0: fucking your staff. So there's yes, that. Yes,
1: that's true. I mean, I hardly even see anybody. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's right. Uh, well, let's uh, welcome back to the David Letterman uh, analysis hour with David yeah. Roth and Josh Sepps. We should probably <laughs> pivot the conversation to, uh, to you, uh, young David Roth being completely uninterested in american sports you never cr- crossed my path <laughs> yeah. and uh, and so now i've been reading you on on trump and thinking well why aren't you just a political writer because a lot of your analysis is uh, is extremely uh, insightful and you have such a great way of putting together some of the, the bringing together some of the threads and strands of what's going on so let's talk about his success i guess because people who are more sympathetic to him than you are will be thinking well it's all very well to say Orange man, bad. He thinks like a child. Yeah. He has the same ideas as an eight-year-old. Uh, but he has been wildly successful in a, across real estate, television, and now politics. Uh, so, to what do you attribute that? I mean, I think that to a certain extent,
1: it's on the culture. I mean, I think that also, though, that like the the things that are incurious about him, and that kind of are unchanging. That like the all of which can make you a success as a sort of a celebrity or as a public figure. The idea that like, he always says things the same way, he generally says the same things, he's very consistent in, you know, not in terms of telling the truth, but in terms of not changing his mind or whatever, that like you have something to hang your hat on there. And I think that that works better than like, I mean, if you were an artist, for instance, you'd wanna see some sort of like creative reinvention. And that's a very like American tick among people that are famous for a long time. Mm. You know, the way that like Madonna can't go three years without like completely reinventing herself and she's like now i'm a fucking dance hall reggae performer and <laughs> yeah. like that's me because it's like you know
0: i just saw that, a picture of her that she posted she looked like Billie eilish like she's, yeah she's going she's going through that phase now i think she had really green hope. hair or something
1: yeah she's got to lean into that huge pants this is where it's all been heading like uh <laughs> sort of like mumble rapping something about uh <laughs>
0: Uh, and it she wouldn't, still looks, honestly wouldn't be the worst. she still looks 22, which is uh oh, yeah. this Tom Cruise effect. I don't know who they I don't know who their guy is in uh in in the Hollywood Hills, but whoever he is yeah. is really good. It's funny, every time I see like bad plastic surgery,
1: like there's a certain type of like famous person that I think yeah. gets plastic the, surgery. The, and wh-
0: the Nicole Kidman 2012.
1: Yeah, where they want, but they kind of get like taut and like cat-like, and there's a, I, I always feel like they're like signaling to you like I've had plastic surgery. <laughs> and then there's like a whole other approach where these people kind of are able to remain ageless either. I guess like Rob Lowe's trick was always like get small treatments before you need them. Yeah. is like famously his thing, but I don't know. I, like, uh, well,
0: I, I think I think the difference is also just, uh, you know, probably 50 grand a, a, a session.
1: Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, and I imagine, but, you know, it's different if you're if you're making that TV syndication money or something like yeah, that. Then yeah. it's, it's simpler to choose to invest in your cheekbones.
0: That's what I I'm far
1: afield here. Did I did I give you anything like an answer on the, yeah, the Trump yeah, thing? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I- no,
0: you did. You did a bit by alluding to culture, but let's also talk a little bit about uh, about economics because one of the things, one of the points that you you also make is that uh, you know he Trump responds to challenges by he his strategy is to quit and declare victory at the same time. And you say that because of how things work for rich people, that mostly worked out for him. Yeah, that's an interesting observation about, like, I guess, inequality in America, that there's no way that a poor person would be able to be as incompetent managing you know, their finances as he was man- managing his businesses, yeah. and yet he's able to kind of coast through unscathed. Yeah, I mean, some of it is also that they could be exactly as
1: unsuccessful as he's been but they will live very differently you know that like this is a series of kind of like frantic lateral moves on his part and debt and whatever but like you know options that are not available to people who you know bank at a place with like an atm in it as opposed to with (laughs) russian oligarchs right yeah like and like whatever some sort of a secret underground chamber where everybody sits around a table and gives you a hundred million dollars or whatever i think that with, with Trump, the, the part of it that's kind of I, that I want to like sort of pull out here because I don't expect or hope that that many people in Australia are up on this element of American culture is that going back, you know, to before uh, Trump became sort of famous or around the time when he was becoming famous, I mean, the, like the 70s and 80s, that the tax code was radically reimagined such that rich people were paying far far less than they traditionally had and this gave them you know and then as this stuff sort of wound up being not just like enshrined into law in terms of the percentages that they were paying but as like loopholes became sort of standardized and there was this whole industry of tax it's the thin line between tax avoidance and tax evasion but as that became like a bigger business that that class sort of it wasn't necessarily that you know their investments were always worth more It was that the share that they had to contribute to, you know, the public interest just was capped and then started to shrink. And so what he started with is more or less what he has. But like he never for all the losing that he's done, there's no way that like, you know, any of it could really have not worked
0: out for him i also did see a statistic uh when he was starting his run that there was an investigation which showed that like if you take the inheritance that he got from his dad and you just put it into a stock index fund yeah you'd have more than he's worth
1: right the basic like the dummy index fund yeah. that i have like my exactly that all of our superannuation
0: like retirement funds are in yeah yeah uh so he would have been better off not doing anything
1: And it's funny because he did. He got some stuff right.
0: He got stuff right early. I
1: mean, like his like Trump Tower is is garish and nobody in New York likes it very much. But like people live there, you know, like it makes money. And the television show made money. And he made money off of that television show because he would endorse anything. And because for a long time, people were asking him to do it.
0: And well, I mean, apparently that saved him. Uh, the New York Times investigation into his tax records right. suggests that he was really, really uh, he he would have been on the brink of uh, an even more catastrophic bankruptcy than he had previous than the many, many bankruptcies that his companies had had in the past. If it, if he hadn't been blessed by uh, who's the creator of the uh, the Apprentice, uh, whatever, Mark that, Burnett, Mark Burnett coming along and going, yeah. uh, "Have I got a deal for you?" And then Trump uh, shrewdly made sure that he had a part ownership stake in the show. Uh, So he made a lot more off his producer fees than he did off his hosting fees. So there's that. Yeah, tip your cap.
1: You know, I mean, like the guy knows how to uh, get his end in every deal. And that's like, you know, that's a, as traits go, I would say value neutral is a nice way to describe it. But it is like, it is what it is. I mean, like, and obviously it worked out for him. The stuff that he's gotten wrong to me is more illustrative of than what he's gotten right. You know, like the sort of the there's a story about him. I've spent all this time trying to find it as I know it was in Politico and I couldn't dig it up. They they talked to some people that did uh, accounting for him back in the, the early 90s when his uh, personal situation was very bad financially. And they talked about, you know, we're in there, we're moving this around, we're trying to avoid, you know, getting foreclosed upon here and there and he would come into the office and just be like i think we should buy an nba team what do you guys think and they'd be like well you don't have any money man and also like that's a fucking stupid idea so i think probably not but there was like that mentality like if people didn't say no to him that was sort of like always what it was that he would just he would move on to some other thing some other gambit and Mm. you know never seeming to sort of doubt himself and again there's like this is gatsby-ish i guess like if you want to like try to connect it to archetypes but it's also like it's innate that's just how it is
0: well it's two things it's gatsby and it's also just a shark who swims around looking for for things dumbly to consume right without really having a strategy about how the whole thing's going to work out but it is interesting to then superimpose gatsby on top and have this sort of very outward flourishy I mean, this is the thing that's really interesting about him. Actually, I'm going to park this because I want to come back and talk about the this archetype of the rich guy. Like, I think one of the most insightful things about Trump was long before he had political, open political aspirations. Uh, John Mulaney, the comic, was doing bits about how Donald Trump is what a poor, poor person thinks a rich person is.
1: Uh, at this point,
0: like, Donald Trump is not
1: just a rich man. Like, Donald Trump is almost like what a hobo imagines a rich man to be. You know, it's like years ago, Trump was walking through an alley and he heard some guy just like, oh boy, oh
0: boy. As soon as my number comes in, I'm gonna put up tall buildings with my name on them. I'll have fine golden hair and a TV show where I fire people with my children and Trump was like, "That is how I will live my life." Thank you, hobo, for that life plan.
1: I bet you, when Donald Trump makes a decision, he thinks to himself, "What would a cartoon rich person do?" A friend of mine describes it as being like a little kid's vision of what being rich is, like yeah, in terms of like right. taking a lim- go- like going to McDonald's in a limousine or <laughs> yes. like wearing a suit to a baseball game. That yeah. those are like. So all these like super theatrical exactly. and weird expressions. Where you're My like, toilet right. would be
0: made of gold.
1: Yeah, like why? no one fucking wants <laughs> well, that's that. Right. That's not like <laughs> you'd have to
0: really mm. be in some like truly forbidden mind realms to even like come up with that. <laughs> that's right. This is why he loves like the Saudis. You know, he doesn't like. Yeah. He doesn't like people who who actually invest in in real things. He likes people who invest in things that glitter a lot.
1: Yeah, like tufted setes. <laughs> That's like right. gratuitous marble. I always thought that's that right. was like a when he went to visit the British royal family, there was a, a, a whole lot of that going on there. Like he mm. clearly loved being in these corridors and formal affairs and all that stuff. And it was clear that that was like who he considered his peers, not like yes. Theresa May, no, like a loser right. who was losing. Who lives in but a
0: house like, like number ten yeah. Downing Street? It's just a terrace house. Come right. on, they're gonna Where they're just the gonna kick her out. Yeah. when when she loses <laughs> exactly what, what
1: if you lived in a in a giant castle full mm. of shitty portraits and long hallways and you know that's, what that's he
0: probably he probably thought buckingham palace was a little bit too subdued cuz yeah. it's not the you know the Brits don't do saudi level bling they're a little bit more yeah, understated it's a to- bit 19th century for trump
1: yeah, you got to ice those couches out.
0: That's right exactly. Uh, no one's even sitting on these chaise lounges. Uh, we need more of them. Uh, you <laughs> said something interesting a, a moment ago which is that for him to insert himself in the apprentice deal as a producer and extract as much f- money as he can from each from each deal is at best value neutral which in your moral universe may be true. But in tr- it gives us an insight into Trump's moral universe. I think he thinks that's extremely morally. Yeah, that's how you know you are winning. Good, be- yeah, because the world is. I mean, there, I don't think there is a difference between winners and good people and losers and bad people in Trump uni- in Trump land. Like by definition, no. you are doing the right thing if you are succeeding, because in this kind of Darwinist conception, uh, you know how could you be doing the wrong thing if you are winning?
1: Right. And I think that that's like, again, you know, if you have a a system of belief or like any sort of like moral type of compass, you would like look at that and be like, well, I think maybe we should unpack that a little bit. But if you don't, and if you're able to just identify which number is larger or which house is gaudier and be like, all right, well, that's the, the bigger one and the better one, then like, yeah, it does sort of like, it explains a great deal. It just doesn't, this has been a challenge with Trump, I think, all through since he started running for this office that is still you know for all of the the disgrace that has been visited on it by so many different occupants it's still something that especially the political media uh takes very seriously that this is clearly the sort of thing that he's not a very complicated man and so they have this idea i think in their heads still of like why is he doing this like what's the strategic calculation and like what is you know like, what is the justification for this in his head? And I think that the answer more often than not is that he's doing it because he can and because he wants it. And that that's, you know, the reason why a lot of other people have done what they've done as president too. He just doesn't do the, the sort of the smokescreen effect that
0: other people throw up around it, where you make it, you you describe it in euphemism. He doesn't do that. But isn't that part of what his supporters say Uh, we're missing about him, that, like, every time people say, oh, Trump is awful, he's degrading the office... Trump supporters say he's just being open about doing what everybody else always does. Like Obama was secretly degrading the office. Hillary was secretly degrading the office and doing deals with, you know, part of her Davos international globalist elite who are all pulling the strings behind the scenes and shoring up trade deals that screw the American worker for decades, all of which is partly true. Uh, You know, he just comes out and he lies to your face instead of lying in smoke filled rooms. So like, yeah. You know, I, I'll take that. Thank you.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's hard to like, and that sort of thing. I mean, this is what makes him uniquely well suited to, especially, I mean, to running against Hillary, who it's worth noting is like the most widely disliked public figure in the last three decades of
0: american politics i mean you know, like, she so was that a candidate david but when she was secretary of state her her numbers were fairly high and i'm no i'm no fan of hillary right. i think she ran a terrible campaign and i've always regarded her as being
1: a miserable campaign a yes. terror
0: <laughs> just a terrible politician i mean in terms of her political acumen her she has no radar for what is not going to seem phony and what isn't but like sometimes the best people don't have that radar it's very rare to find someone who both has has finely tuned uh political instincts and also is a political is a sort of policy wonk and also is going to be a good leader i mean these people are rare her husband had it you know obama had it uh reagan yeah. had it but it's, it's i think there's, there's
1: something about the with clinton and obama though i think this is important too that like they did have it i mean they are both super talented communicators and politicians but in order to get elected to a high office with the the sort of policy views that they have in that approach, you really have to be that good, because the approach itself doesn't really fundamentally offer that much beyond, to the average voter, beyond, a, you know, a certain theatrical presentation of a, a degrading status quo, to me.
0: What approach and doesn't it, offer that much? You mean their policy approach or their yes, political? Yeah, Right.
1: Because okay. I think the, the, the presentation stuff is great, you know, like, and you that's how Obama, looked like a visionary and sounded like a visionary, but was not. And that Clinton, you know, was a a pragmatist, I guess, in terms of the policy positions that he pursued. But like what that meant basically was accepting the half a loaf that an increasingly reactionary Republican Party was offering him. Mm. And then then selling it to people with this incredible God-given talent that he had to communicate. But I think that like where that gets you down the line is that like, if the policy outcomes that you're delivering are limited in terms of how much they're helping people, in the way that uh, liberal democratic policy outcomes have been in the U.S., you know, for the last like, since the 90s, since Clinton, that like if that's not working for people and they're aware that it's not working because they see factories closing and they see things sort of generally sliding, then you have to be really good. Because otherwise, you can lose even to Trump, even to this kind of, like, incurious and, and outwardly kind of silly character, because he's like, you say all these good things, and you don't actually
0: do anything. I'm, always that, a, bit, I'm a bit torn by this argument, David, because the, you know, obviously what the Clintonite or Obama camp would res- respond to that would be, uh, we think it's better off being in power than having pure ideals that never get you elected. And we... getting elected, we you know there's what obama would like to do if he were emperor and then there's what obama can do given the political constraints around him uh so that's
1: and that's that's fair as far as it goes and and, i agree and, and
0: that if they pursued your recommendation and were more pure to their political ideals then what you would end up with is what the where the republican party finds itself which is you create so much gridlock because you're so incapable of doing deals with the other side and getting anything done that you're party atrophies and you end up with some totally uh, wild situation like Donald Trump, who in part is a consequence of political gridlock. Like, I suppose Trump is a consequence of people hating Obama, but he's just as much a consequence of nothing getting done in Washington, which was a result yeah. of Mitch McConnell's ideological purity, which is closer to what you're saying Clinton and Obama should have.
1: Well, I think that's it's mostly true. Here's the distinction that I would draw on that, that the idea of like ideological purity is fine for me because I'm a sports writer, and sometimes <laughs> I get to write about things that make me upset in current affairs. But what I think the difference with this is that if you look at the the mistakes that, not the mistakes, but the priorities that uh, Clinton and Obama had during their times, where they really did have unified government, you know, that was all of their party. That the idea of something like uh, card check, which was a a union uh, provision that would have made it easier for people to organize their workplaces, which Obama had two years to pass with a Senate that had a super like a filibuster-proof majority and the House of Representatives this, between 2008 and 2010. That you can say that you should pass that because it's you know the right thing to do. That you know you, it's an unfair balance in, in power in the workplaces for between bosses and workers, and that's all true. But you could also say that unions are important to the success of democratic politics and also that organized people and organized workplaces do tend to vote. I mean, that these produce people who are politically engaged and more inclined to be Democrats than your like non-union shops. And you could say then that passing the card check would be like, yeah, ide- ideologically pure if you care about it, but that punting on it and deciding not to do it it's the sort of thing that you're doing because of a different sort of orthodoxy, which is the idea that like, no one cares about this, unions are dying, we're not that party anymore. We're the party of the educated urban yeah. elite. And that like, so that's the part of it where I think there obviously it's easy for me to say that you should do the right thing. It's but I've lived I've, you know, lived here my whole life. Like I know that's not how it works. To me, it's there's a sort of A fake pragmatism to Democratic politics here that Republicans, as you said, I mean, I think you're absolutely right in terms of them having a commitment to ideologies that make it impossible for them to govern effectively Mm. over the long term. I think that Democrats are about governing effectively. I think that the idea of that, that should be thought of more ambitiously in terms of like, because they're not about consolidating power in the way that republicans are and i think that there's a, a way that the politics that they profess and the and power itself getting it and keeping it can be made to work together they just don't quite square that in their own minds i mean uh,
0: yeah especially since like part of donald trump's appeal or the core of his appeal maybe was all of these guys are crooked and they're all betraying you behind the scenes and they're all beholden to moneyed interests. I'm the only guy who doesn't need, who can't be paid off. I'm the only guy who, you know, of course, Hillary Clinton came to my, uh, my wedding. Like, you know, she's, she was sucking up to me. They all suck up to me because I'm the one with the money and they need me because they're, because politicians are leeches and I'm not. So to some extent, yeah, that's true. I don't know about the card check, because I'm not familiar. Oh yeah, with that I mean that's a, case. that's a policy but thing. I guarantee. I'll I'll it... guarantee if, I'll, I guarantee that if I guarantee that if if you spoke to uh, who was uh, Obama's chief of staff, David uh, oh, Rahm Emanuel. His, uh, oh, either Rahm Emanuel or David Axelrod or whatever whoever it was yeah. about about that, they would say, uh, "Yeah, sorry, we didn't get to that in the two years that we had uh, in the just two years that we had we had full control of the government. We were doing a little thing like the largest domestic policy uh, reform in." a generation which was reforming the healthcare the entire healthcare yeah. system so there were a couple things we did And that, and didn't and get that is what they've what they've said about it and it's like to a certain extent it makes sense and
1: then to another extent it's like well you know they're already compromising on that like do you want power or not like do you want to do are you willing to do the things that are like Cynical and serve your interests electorally that the other guys are willing to do. I mean, this- and
0: aren't you sort of also pointing to like a crisis of the left generally, not just in the United States, but everywhere, which is that yes. it's, it's this alliance and all political parties have alliances between dissimilar people. But I feel like the the, the multiple bases of left wing politics are becoming less and less similar over time. And so it's like the part, left-wing parties everywhere have, are, have one foot in one boat and another foot in another boat, and the boats are drifting apart and they're going to end up falling in the river. And those two boats are respectively like blue-collar, formerly unionized industrial workers. And then the other one is highly educated uh, inner city elites who care a lot about, uh, you know, cultural issues, but don't really give a staff about, you know, the, the, about poor people's pay.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's true to a certain extent. I also think, though, that the uh, there's a, a for Democrats, especially here, that uh, going back to when they got their asses handed to them by Reagan, that I think that they've been very afraid to talk about economics um, in a way that is anything other than sort of coded to make sure that everybody is because the other, you know, sort of moving part in American politics is is race and that Democrats have been the party of black and brown voters for, you know, going back to the Civil Rights Act. And that in that case, the the way that Democrats have sort of responded to that was like they have taken that, that sort of base for granted to a certain extent. And then the way that they talk about economics now and you can see this even with Biden being like, you know, it's not a handout. They like to make sure that things are means tested to make sure that um, you know, nobody is getting money from the government that they don't deserve. And all of that is like you know, if you wanna have that be a a practical solution to something, then I suppose that's fine. But if you're using it as a political way to signal I'm not taking your money and giving it to like poor people who are just gonna spend it on, you know, drugs or whatever. That like once you're you're signaling in that kind of defensive way, you're not selling anything, mm. you're apologizing right off the yeah, bat. Yeah, that's
0: true. And that's as much and a I tone think- thing as anything.
1: Yeah, and I think, but I think you're right in the assessment that there is this like. Leftists are not willing to be, or whatever. I mean, Democrats and leftists have nothing in common. But that like parties like that, like a left liberal politics in countries like yours and mine, are very much on the the back foot always with stuff like this. I think in part because they. You know
0: what I'm just noticing, David, is is that you're sort of pointing to a lack of, uh, moral spine or moral conviction, uh, on the left in matters of economics, which is, which is mirrored by a corollary intense, uh, sense of moral conviction on cultural issues. So much moral conviction that it's actually putting everybody else off, uh, in the, in the heartland, which is a funny thing. Like the left, is now a hundred thousand percent self-righteously convinced that anybody who was, you know, opposed to gay marriage ten years ago is a moral monster. But if you talk about uh, economics, then, as you say, they start cravenly apologising for the fact that they might want higher taxes instead of saying this is the right thing for us all to have to chip in a little bit more so that all of us can take care of each other and live better lives.
1: I think that the identity politics knock on Democrats is fair as far as it goes. I think it also is exaggerated by the way that it's talked about um, in political media here. And then also, by the way, it's sort of performed online. That I I think that there is uh, the idea that it's, it's putting voters off or whatever really just hasn't been borne out as much of late that like I think that there it's always sort of a parodic version of it that you can point to, but that a lot of this stuff, you know, bush winning an election basically by demagoguing on the idea of gay marriage in 2004 that like that doesn't really it hasn't been shown to work anymore and so like trump's attempts to do it with anti-trans stuff or to do it with uh, sort of these ideas of of this seething brown horde coming up on the southern border or whatever every time he's tried to do that stuff he's gotten his ass kicked and i don't know if that's you can entirely chalk that up to you know inconsistent Messaging or like incompetent politicking on his part. I think that there is a sense where what public opinion is on stuff like that is a lot less well known uh, than it seems like it would be
0: from online. You, does that make sense? Right. Yeah, it totally does. The problem is that the, I agree 100% that it's an online phenomenon and it's largely a social media phenomenon and it's largely a Twitter phenomenon. The problem yep. is that that most candidates and all of their advisors are totally obsessed with twitter and so yes. they absorb all of that and you end up journalists and journalists as well, are as yeah. well so what ends up coming out are these sort of statements and platforms and platitudes that make a lot of suburban people just roll their eyes and go so I, i'm not sure that you're I, I don't agree I with you them well, partly confuse them, yeah, and partly make them feel that the candidate is not on their wavelength and is somehow lost off in a, a bizarro world that they can't quite access. So it's not just – I don't think you can look at the failure of the right to capitalise on jingoistic attacks on uh, progressive wokeness as evidence that that progressive wokeness isn't doing a good job itself of alienating people who don't get it.
1: Oh, yeah. But I think it's part of, a you know, a large, loud chorus of alienating forces in the culture right now. Yeah. And I think that like to the extent that people don't I, the way that I always understood the gay marriage thing to have worked out here was that it was the sort of thing that seemed terribly foreign. And uh, like, just like not something that is in your community, you know, not something that like if that's like whatever people in San Francisco and New York City are doing that and like that's not me. I think that as it became the sort of thing where people realized that like, yeah, you know gay people, you know, that there's gay people in your church, there's gay people in your workplace, whatever, that like as that became like normal in the sense of just being like a part of regular life, that I think that people started to accept it sort of differently. And I think that with a lot of the stuff, I mean, like the sort of outer boundaries of campus stuff is... You know, I've been on a college campus in my life. Like, I'm sure that I did all kinds of strange shit that would have baffled my parents or whatever. But it's like, then I left and I had to go get a job. And that's like <laughs> how people sort of, and you know, that didn't mean I I turned my back on sort of values or whatever. I just sort of was less concerned about, you know, whatever issues uh, were like on my mind enough to keep me from doing my homework, but not on my mind enough to become like guiding Signals in my life.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I think the t- the college stuff can get totally overblown, and Fox News will always find an opportunity to to report on some tiny, isolated event at some progressive college and turn it into a national calamity. Uh, that doesn't mean that the ethos of of universities heading in a direction of uh, of greater censoriousness, greater moral panic, greater kind of. Uh, moral self-certainty and finger-wagging towards ideas that they don't agree with doesn't then uh, suffuse itself into the outlooks of people who go on to run companies and media organizations. I mean, you only have to look at the the ructions that have happened at the New York Times, the editorial page editor being fired, uh, similar upsets at Vox and places like that, where there is a generation of younger reporters who believe that uh, that any dissent from their interpretation of of moral justice uh, on cultural issues is it, is prima facie evidence of white supremacy and like fascism, and so it shouldn't be bridged. And they're in it, they're in a bit of a battle with old guard people who are kind of stuffy old free speeches who go well maybe everybody in the country who you know has has a right to articulate their opinions even if it's something that you find pretty noxious that's sort of the principle of democracy and that that is being somewhat swept away so without engaging in the fox news hysteria there's something there or am i misguided about that
1: i don't think you're entirely misguided but i don't agree with that assessment of the the times for instance that i think that like what happened there i think this idea that uh that speech is being chilled I think is like the idea that James Bennett was was fired because like woke people in the newsroom, uh, you know, aboard his approach, I think, like really lets him off the hook for having done an exceedingly bad and lazy job being the editor of their opinion section. The story that got people riled up was written by, you know, the Tom Cotton story. Yeah, just, by just explain, a, to,
0: explain to the listener who hasn't followed that what happened. Yes,
1: right, who, who doesn't know who the uh, junior <laughs> senator from Arkansas is. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I envy them uh, so much. The So this is a sitting senator uh, wrote an opinion piece for The New York Times that was during the period of, uh, you know, initially there was uh, some rioting, but it was just protests against uh, sort of racist and uh impunity uh racism and impunity in policing and as these protests were happening cotton wrote a story that was like send in the army like put this down like basically up to the idea of like live ammo to m- get these protests out of the street and this was a story that uh given that he was basically advocating uh occupying the city of new york with troops and that a lot of the people that work for the new york times Uh, live in New York City and that they did not want this. I think that that, plus the fact that when the story came out, it later was a result, you know, like a junior staffer assigned it based on a tweet that Cotton had done. Bennett himself, the opinion page editor, did not review the story, hadn't read it, uh, didn't like seemingly to know anything about it. Like that, it's your section. You're not running that many stories. You have to know. Like Mm. that's just, you're not doing your job right. Now in terms of how... Like he got there. I mean, I think he hired some people that were provocateurs that annoyed other people, uh, just in terms of the way that they behaved. And there was a perception in that workplace that there was that they were able to get away with stuff because they were sort of like, you know, big ticket opinion provocateurs. But I think that that's a very old thing at newspapers, as I understand it. You know, like workplace favorites. You know, if you've ever been in a workplace, it's a very annoying thing to sort of encounter. I don't think that that's the reason why he lost sort of the confidence of that newsroom i think that it was that he didn't do his job right i do think though that there's one bit that i want to uh point out though about the distinction that we're drawing here between this sort of like theatrical uh, and performative online uh you know wokeness is such a corny term or whatever yeah, but we, that, need like, a word. A, we need a new word yeah hmm. but if people know what i'm talking yeah. about that there's a distinction to be drawn between that and the sort of media addiction like the weird way that for instance if you see trump tweeting a lot about like people that were involved in the fbi investigation of his campaign's contacts with russia people that ordinary folks don't know who they are peter stroke lisa page he tweets about them all the time these are c-team people that because of the media universe that he is in are dominating his mind share and that there's So basically, like the way that the campaigns have broken down in terms of their general approach in this election is that Biden is very old and very not online. He's a very traditional type of Democrat in terms of his policies. But he's also just like he's not a guy that seems as fixated on television or Twitter
0: as Trump is. And so (laughs) He he doesn't seem like a guy who knows how to turn on the TV, let alone launch Twitter.
1: No, that's like one of the big jokes about him in like, you know, the memes that you'll see sometimes is like Trump ranting about say something and then Biden just saying, how do you do PDF? <laughs> and it's like, you know, funny, and not unfair or wrong either, I don't think. But that like, so a lot of what the Republicans do is this like sort of very online, uh, like trolling and kind of like, you know, referencing things that if you're really like plugged into this like Fox News cinematic universe. Like, you know, all of this stuff, you know, all of the people that are involved in the conspiracy against President Trump and all this shit. And so that rings bells to you. But I think it's just as alienating to people who are not online in that way, when they see the president just doing word salad where it's a bunch of names and a bunch of dates and conspiracies and what about glenn simpson has anyone ever accounted for glenn simpson and like (laughs) i don't even know who all these
0: people are and i don't know who glenn
1: simpson is he was tweeting about him today it's all this is the same shit and like i know at the top line guys in that like it's part of my job to write about it but in a lot of this stuff it's like if you were watching fox news this morning you would have heard that name right but if you didn't watch it this morning then it's just the president saying a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Like, it sounds like uh, like we didn't start the fire every yeah. day in all caps on Twitter. <laughs> That's right. Which is, I think, as jarring an approach as like, I mean, it's a, a, just a different way of being sort of hyper online. Yeah. And I think that yeah, but the on, Republicans but, have- been. But
0: there's a- Yeah, sorry, finish that thought.
1: No, I was going to say that I think that like Republicans are not, in the way that you can see in Democrats that attempt to sort of sometimes cater to- a uh a performative online base i think the republicans do that too it's just that there's this presumptive idea that because they are the conservatives that this is somehow like the people that they're catering to by bringing up glenn simpson and his phone calls that those people are normal Mm. do you see what i'm saying like i I, I don't know
0: exactly what you're saying but i but i think you're i think you're focusing uh unnecessarily much on the the bubble aspect of it, of the being and mm-hmm. in being inside a bubble and talking only to people who understand that bubble, and uh, not the way that the that that bubble chatter lands for people who aren't inside the bubble. The way that the weird Trumpian Fox News conspiracy theorizing, almost QAnon adjacent chatter lands for people who aren't inside it is, oh, these are just crazy people talking about nonsense. Uh, like, but there's no moral valence to that. The way that w- woke bubble lands for everybody else, is you are part of the white supremacist problem, you are part of the the issue, you have to watch what you say, you will sit down and raise your fist, you have to be on our side. It's just a very finger-waggy thing to observe if you're not already inside it. So I think that's you know, what I mean about it, it alienating the heartland.
1: I'll have to take your word for it in that regard, because I think that the like there are elements of it that I think can be caricatured very easily. And yet they're really, and this is one of the very few things that I am authentically optimistic about in terms of the future of the country right now is that in a lot of small cities and small towns where you would not expect these kind of protests to happen, people were in the streets for weeks about, you know, racism and impunity in policing, that this Mm. is not, and in many of these communities, this is like largely white communities. And you can caricature that, or you can say, that this stuff is really not, and I think you know, and it's easily
0: caricatured. You know,
1: white people are incredibly easy to caricature. Well, I, I mean, as, I'm not caricaturing as a that. member. I, of the team. I, I mean,
0: I want more of that, and I think that the woke bubble impedes it.
1: I think that to a certain extent it does. I think also though, like you have to look at the results. I think that for me, it's hard. I've never been. So I, I did some marching here uh, when the the protests were really happening, and I attended a vigil or two, but it's never really been my thing i think that there's a self-consciousness that i just can't sort of switch off and so there's things where if somebody's leading a chant the thing you do is you participate in that chant but there is a part of me that is in my head being like well this isn't 100 percent what i think this is maybe not on me to say and that that like if that is chilling speech then I, i i guess i just don't necessarily find that to be that menacing a threat i think that there's a there is a lot of speech in the u.s i think uh the the main issue and i guess maybe this does go back to the bubble thing is sort of uh a lack of of good faith maybe in terms of how that speech is directed and how it's used and i think also in terms of the capacity to sort of accept uh what other people are saying as valid
0: yeah that's right and i think that's a a really good point it's about giving people the benefit of the doubt and i guess i always expect that the right isn't going to give people the benefit of the doubt because they're the right and so they're they're morally self self self-satisfied and smug i just want the left and i was going to say us i mean because i am broadly of the left that i want to ask to to remain the side that that allows that is I suppose intellectually superior and actually more nuanced and sophisticated in our thinking, and uh, less dumbly chanting slogans and moralizing. Like, uh, so I, n- I know what you mean. I want more people marching and protesting things that are that are real. I mean, the the you know the role the the behavior of American police forces to people from countries outside of the United States seems so outrageous, and yeah. the. Prevalence of guns in the United States seems so obviously something that a sane country would want to deal with that it's it's horrendous. I mean, and so that and yet that conversation I get I I I perceive as being partly subsumed by the race by the racist conversation. So anytime I see anytime I see someone online who's trying to make the point about you know general police reform. They get accused of of whataboutism or trying to change the subject from the actual problem, which is white supremacy—that we live in a white supremacist society. Or you know, if if someone, if someone in the suburbs of the... Wisconsin says like, "Hang on, why isn't 1776 the founding date of our country anymore? Why is it 1619?" They're as likely as anything to get to get called a racist for you know, you go away and study and do your homework and come back and figure out and you explain to me what you've what you've learned. Until I would then, say that the out, the that
1: like there's not and again like I, I don't know to what extent people are really having these conversations
0: in spaces other than social media i, mean, I think it's only on social I think it's only on social media. Right. but again it then and has so ramifications be because one the of people things... who are on social media end up running newsrooms or will will soon do so or can yeah. at least coerce um, the people who do run the newsrooms to resign
1: i will say the, the people that wind up running newsrooms from my experience are not people who post a
0: lot uh, that there, no, there are people that be. are they kind of be, on that ball. Isn't this track? just a generational thing? I mean, the peop- really, these man. people are I mean, thirty like, now, and they'll be fifty someday.
1: They might be, but I think that you know most people are uh, make a political migration during those decades of their lives. And I would say that like people that it's not really very different than any other workplace. You know that there are people who are super duper bomb thrower rhetoric types, and those people tend to be infantry. And then the people that wind up getting promoted to top brass are people that are a little bit more astute, or I would say astute, but you know you could also say calculating in terms of how they present themselves. I don't think that there really are a lot of radicals running, you know, websites or newspapers or magazines in large part because there aren't as many websites or newspapers or magazines anymore in the United States, but also because of the fact that I think that like that's just it, it sorts. By the position mm. you know that like whatever their sort of politics are that like once you are dealing with business development people and ownership and whatever like that these are those are facilitators that is a different sort of class of people and i think that's that in terms of how yeah. i mean it's just like it's basic workplace stuff i mean I that's mean, maybe. been my experience I don't, I don't, every place i've been
0: yeah yes the, obviously if you're going to rise to the level to a management level then you have to have some manage, managerial competence which means you can't be a revolutionary but yeah. I think that's asking too much of of the of the case that I'm making. I, I'm simply making the case that there is a mindset in which uh, people were inculcated prior to this century, which was one of respecting diversity of opinion as the paramount value, which has given way to a more sort of critical uh, postmodern style of theorizing, which is that everything is subjective. Uh, all we have are narratives, and the world is about power struggles and power structures. So that, and I can imagine you being a good manager and still holding that belief, right? So a slightly more censorious and slightly less, and maybe that's a better world. Look, you know, I'm 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 a free speecher at heart, so I think that a gigantic, roiling uh, uh, society full of lots of different voices saying lots of different things is. Is is optimal? Other people might say that that why would you needlessly have a society that chaotic and offensive when you could uh, y- make sure that people are are on the same page about what we what we can all agree is good. Um, I'm just a bit more in sympathy for the dissenter, and I know that you object to the framing of it being more or less free speech. But I think you know either either a company is going to regard it as being acceptable to say that the United States is not irredeemably racist. Or it's not. Either a company is going to regard it as being acceptable to say that that biological sex exists and is is not, uh, you know, in a, in a binary sense, or is not. And those are positions that are becoming increasingly equated with hate hate speech, at least in the U.S. I
1: I think with hate speech is is tough because people don't necessarily get uh, the, where hate speech is used or ever prosecuted here in the United States. It's a very narrow. Well, yeah, I'm not talking uh, legally.
0: Of, Let, let's just say that they're regarded as being. Um, Claims that can make a workplace unsafe.
1: See, I don't think, though, that there's necessarily less. uh, It's a question of where those wind up. I think that in terms of the volume of speech, I don't think that we're necessarily seeing less of that sort of argument. I think that it's a matter of how it's sorted. And so that the idea of these opinions being maybe not even in conflict, but the idea of there being a dynamic between the idea of like, how does racism exist within the United States and how does America's history tell the story of racism through you know our culture that there are there are ways of doing that better or worse but that the way that it works right now is that you have people saying one thing and then people saying no it's not and that those are running in parallel channels and not necessarily in engagement with each other like, in terms of the 1619 thing, the idea that this is, like, somehow an official attempt to change the founding date of the United States or whatever, I mean, it's a rhetorical device. It's an idea. It's a lead, you know? And in terms of
0: that, well, I mean, when you look at it, I think it, it is think interesting to, the, to see bridge, what, it, the, what the Times has removed from, uh, from the 1619 project since it became... Uh, controversial like if you follow the follow the links of brett stevens uh, attack on it in his recent column uh it is interesting that so the original version did say like what if everything we'd learned about the america's founding date was wrong what if in fact it was blah de, blah in quite unequivocal like non-metaphorical terms and they've now rewritten it and, and i don't know that that's necessarily those bits.
1: to me though that's a, that's a writer's choice
0: i mean to me that's
1: not the idea of being like we have to you know Everybody must learn this and agree with it. I think it's an, it's making an argument.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm the not idea like, of uh,
1: finding it. Like, I don't have do a you, position on
0: the sixteen nineteen project. But oh yeah, and, no, I get. But, I mean, but, but I, I mean, my, my point. My point is just how we respond to people who aren't who haven't drunk the Kool Aid, right? Whether or not we regard them as being uh, our partner, our partner citizens who are all on this journey together, uh, who will have an interesting perspective if they disagree with us. Or whether we regard them as being evidence of of the of the system of oppression that we have to fight against, and I think there's a little too much of the latter.
1: I think that's true in some ways, but I think that for the most part, that hasn't been my experience in doing politics here. To the extent that I've done it, it hasn't been my experience in organizing workplaces when I've done it. That like from moment to moment, that like people's lives are much more diverse and involve many more compromises than they would you know online that basically yeah. or than they would in any sort of abstracted space because that's what it takes to get through the day it's what it takes to get from you know not being an organized newsroom to being an organized ruse room there might be somebody that you don't necessarily like working with but you have to be willing to fight for them and them and them fight for you even if you think that they're a pain in the ass and that that's like i think an experience that a lot of people have not necessarily in terms of organizing, but just in terms of having to be a part of a team. And I think that the the force of atomization in American culture, the thing that sort of pushes people apart and keeps them apart, to me, is not ideological, but structural in terms of the way that uh, basically the way that our lives are are governed by the economics in this country. Mm. And so I think that there is a sense in which like people can be strident or can be too quick to dismiss other people i think that that's true i think that there's a great uh amount of animus in this country um just sort of directed in various different ways but then also just kind of a free-floating cloud that like sits over the culture where people are very convinced that somebody is getting away with something that they themselves are not getting away with Mm. and that that's not necessarily a right-wing or a left-wing thing. I think that everybody is aware that we are not getting what we pay for from our government, that we're not getting the stuff that, we are, that the Constitution, you know, the high-minded ideals of the country do not, from one moment to the next, necessarily seem to apply to a lot of people. They, or they apply um, selectively. And I think that the anger that comes from that is natural. And I think it's then a matter of like figuring out where to put it. I think there's a lot of friendly fire, just in general in the culture, mm. because of the fact that people are aware that they are at risk.
0: And if you and had, yeah, I mean, if you had to design a system that to to animate those grievances and to divide people social media would be the system you would come up with. I mean, you're oh reminding God. me of, of Andrew Morantz's great, but have you read Antisocial by Andrew Morantz? Yeah, New Yorker I writer?
1: Have, I've not read the book. I am actually friends with Andrew Marantz.
0: He, We'll tell him he is an absolute gem because, I will do it. Uh, and I want to have him on this show because his book Antisocial is, is a tour de force of unpacking exactly how we got into, into the sort of universe of the Trump bubble that you were talking about mm. before. And, I mean, New Yorker
1: reporting has been great on it. I have not read the book yet, but I I loved his stories. Yeah,
0: it's great, and and it's this weird phenomenon where all of the—I mean—the algorithms are basically. I mean, we all know this, but they're rewarding engagement, which means they're re- rewarding sexiness and clickiness and, uh, you know, likability and shareability, which are all things that have nothing to do with bringing us together as a species and figuring out our problems. They're all things I that I would incentivize... argue are the
1: exact opposite yes, of yeah, that. Yes, that's
0: right. So, I mean, when I hear you, I think, you know, our disagreement about about wokeness is really telling because you know, the conclusion that we can probably both agree with, regardless of who has the, the correct perspective, is if we all just got offline- the problem would evaporate like regardless of who's right about it
1: yeah i think also that a lot of it is that it's it the problem exists online in a way that it can't or or wouldn't exist in real life because when you're unless you are a damaged person if you are engaging with someone whose life experience is very different from yours like at some point you have to realize that this is another real person and that this is a real experience that they had and you'll learn something from it i think people do this every day it's just Hard when, First of all, when there are all of these sort of new identities and ideas that even since I was in college that I didn't encounter in a very liberal college space, you know, 20 years ago, that a lot of that, it it's jarring to be asked to think about things that you haven't thought about before or to reconsider, you know, behaviors or whatever that like all of that is true. And yet I think that in actual human engagement, you just do it. I think that online, especially that, like, I think you're right about the way that the algorithms sort of work and that each social media site algorithm somehow, it works in a distinct, perverse way that, like, Twitter incentivizes a sort of a, like, a performative and strident rhetorical approach that Facebook tends to silo people and therefore, and then, like, sort of close off other avenues of inquiry. On, I would say on both sides of the perspective, although obviously it's worked much better uh, for reactionary politics here. And then the way that YouTube works is just that you take something that people might be curious about, and then you're like, well, if you like this version of it, here's one that's got 10% more of the thing you were curious about in it, and here's one that's got 25%, and here's one that's got 500% more. And so if you start out with something that is, you know, basically like a good faith question, That eventually you're going to stop getting good faith answers because of the fact that the algorithm favors answers that are just like louder in volume or that contain more, uh, you know, of whatever substance it is Mm. they think keeps people around. I mean,
0: bullshit is sexier than boring reality. It's easier.
1: Yes. I mean, I think that this is, again, like the sort of if you want to bring it back to Trump, that this is like something that he gets and has gotten in a sort of, like, an, an animal-like part of his brain for as long as he's been famous. Which is basically that, like, sometimes you tell a lie because it's more interesting than the truth, and that you keep on telling it because it's, like, you realize that people like it. I think that that's 100% the way that he works. And I think that if he had been, like, in terms of, like, what politics, talk. Let me try that again. <laughs> in terms of what things he says repeatedly, it's the stuff that he notices gets pops when he does rallies. It's the same way that like a live musician might figure out that a song is working or not working, mm. and that like, oh yeah,
0: he's he's a, he's a he's a stand-up comic in the sense that he workshops yeah. material, he sees what works, and then uh, and then he he doubles down on those. And there's but there's a way in which that's also sort of a metonym for how social media makes
1: discourse worse because is the people that he talks to are his base and he's trying and exclusively to his base and so the stuff that he gives them that they i mean they're pretty devoted to him anyway but that a lot of the stuff about immigration or whatever that like you could show him a a poll that says this is a loser of an issue for you man like this is like people don't like it when you say stuff that is like overtly non-coded racist shit about immigrants because that's like broadly not an opinion that Americans have. Mm. And he'll be like, well, I said it in Pensacola and I got a standing ovation, so you tell me which is real, Mm. like this poll or the fact that these people were cheering and chanting my name after I said it. And I think for him, it's just, again, it's the same sort of thing. It's an incentive in the direction of what produces the biggest pop in the crowd. And that that's not, you know. A way to have like a reasoned sort of politics, but then it's not—it's not a reasoning decision. It's a—it's a television decision.
0: This brings me to uh, something that you just said, uh, and which we can wrap on, which you said earlier in in the, in this episode, which is you referred to the Fox News cinematic universe as if Fox News is like Marvel, with a cast of characters and uh, super villains and uh, evil doers and heroes. Which is similar to the model of of Trump that sh- that has him as an archetype as basically a professional wrestler, where yeah. you know he's acting out a wrestling fantasy. I mean, the fact that he literally used to be involved in professional wrestling and had this—he's whole... in the
1: WWE Hall of Fame—is he?
0: I mean, that's yeah. amazing. And so just explain, do you know the, the dynamic between him and the owner and he, they ended up shaving his head and like buying back the yeah, team for twice a as much bit. or something? Can you so articulate gonna- that to people who don't know it? I'll do my best. I'm
1: in a weird position with wrestling where I you know, I haven't watched it since I was eight years old, but I edit a lot of people that write about it. So I have Right, of course. not just some secondhand knowledge of it, but like secondhand opinions about wrestlers I've never watched. <laughs> which is uh you know, That's, talk about like sort of a perfect dystopian for the twenty first century where you, yeah, you, you, absolutely. Don't, you
0: don't you don't actually have to engage with anything. You can just inherit opinions from the people around you. Yeah.
1: It's like if you only read literary criticism.
0: <laughs> like it's a really Yeah, okay, give us your sophisticated Like New York Times book review version of uh, Trump's wrestling storyline.
1: So basically, like he was a natural fit for that universe. McMahon uh, is Vince McMahon, who is the the owner and sort of the also a character in the WWE, which is the world former World Wrestling Federation. That basically like is this kind of like swinging dick like boss man type who's got you know enemies and for a long time that was like a way that they would set up their uh heroes would be that these were guys that like Vince would try to stop them but they were too badass and then you know that's how you wind up with like this sort of universal fantasy of suplexing your boss WWE just took the you know subtext right out of that and they were like no they're going to have stone cold steve austin throw this guy on his ass and everybody's going to cheer and then he's going to drink a
0: beer in the ring and that's that so the boss of the wrestling federation would enter the ring and get thrown around
1: yes
0: okay yeah, he's wrestled, he's
1: been, he's been a character. Yes. And so Trump himself was kind of for a while was like a rival of McMahon's in in the storyline. In real life of course they're friends, but you know, it's like it's not real. Uh the but they're peers And these so storylines th- basically... are all
0: sort of scripted in in advance. I mean, cuz I think some people still think wrestling is like boxing or something where it's actually going on, but it's this is a it's almost there like are, a season all... a season long story arc that's constructed,
1: yeah. right? And so this is, yeah, it's all scripted in the sense that, like, the, um, the matches themselves are choreographed. The other stuff is just, you know, it's dialogue or it's ideas of sort of a structured improv or whatever, you know, in terms of who's talking. With Trump, the idea was that this was sort of a rival rich guy and that he had his, you know, his guys that were working with him and McMahon had his guys that were working with him. And that's why when, like, if Trump's guy pins Vince's guy, then Trump gets to shave his head. That it was basically that. But the thing that's interesting about this, Trump has always sort of loved wrestling, again, because it was something that was getting big in the 80s when he was getting big, and all of this stuff, like basically all of the sort of cultural touchstones in his approach to the world are like frozen in amber from that era. But he also, <laughs> uh, like or whatever color you want to use to describe
0: it. The, <laughs> yeah, amber is fine.
1: But, right, but the uh, the stuff with um, what you were saying in terms of the the reality versus fakeness of it that there's a story that has been told enough times that uh i have no choice but to believe it's true where in um a storyline from the late 90s uh vince mcmahon appeared to get into a limousine but then exploded a rival had planted a bomb in it (laughs) And, you know, I don't imagine I'm giving a spoiler alert here when I say that Vince McMahon was, in fact, fine and was not really blown up in the limousine. The reason this is worth mentioning is that apparently that night Trump called uh, McMahon's home and was like, I saw what happened to Vince. Like, and his what? wife had to be like, I'm going to get him. Yes. That he basically believed that 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 something had really happened to Vince
0: McMahon. But he's a performer in the same he show that, well, he, that the car exploded in. That. in.
1: He wasn't in that storyline, so he knows the ones what is that he goldfish. He doesn't
0: remember the the like the fact that this is all scripted.
1: Well, yes, <laughs> I mean I think that, like there is like it's bizarre. as a Triple H, I believe, is the wrestler that told the story, and it's like he's told it enough times in the same way. And I, I'll send you a, a link to the actual thing so you can help you know find the version of it that's more correct because okay. this is speaking of goldfish brains. I mean, this is like third generation of something I read in a blog post I was editing three years ago. Yeah, but. Yeah. There is that element of like it's theatrical, but also, you know, like you really do take some bumps in the ring and stuff like that. And that clearly there is like a a space there, like a liminal space that uh, has room for interpretation for him.
0: But the thing so there's a there's an analogy here to Trump's presidential career, uh, which is. And I, for this, I, I thank Jay Shapiro, who's a buddy of mine, who has a great podcast called Dilemma, which is a high-end philosophy uh, podcast where he wrestles with uh, with uh, big philosophical things. And I saw him tweeting the other day about this storyline, and the idea was that after Trump's guy won and he shaved the head of the head of the wrestling federation. Uh, and I think he then like bought it. I, I can't remember what the financial transaction was, but I think he bought it back at twice the price. Like you know, he sold it to him and then bought it back at, at twice the price or something like that in one of the storylines. Uh, that Trump needs that to get out of the White House. He needs to shave the Democrats' head and <laughs> like sell <laughs> and basically walk away victorious, having you know having double his money metaphorically. And uh, oh yeah, and he being can't able admit to admit defeat. The that's whole right gig so how do you him construct- up if he does like the
1: story that gets told is that he would want to start his own sort of cable network you know or that you have like a sort of a right sure. wing and i think that there's something to that but there's also this long litany of business failures on his part things that he kind of half-asses and you know or that he like sort of slaps his name on and then trusts somebody else to to run for him maybe you know unwisely that suggests that i don't think that that would necessarily work now I think that that's it, that might be what he tries to do because I think being on TV is extremely important to him. But I don't know, like, what else he necessarily wants. I mean, I always sort of thought with running for president and you know even with getting the nomination, that he was the the dog that caught the car. That yeah. this is like what he wanted to do was like give himself a boost and make it look like you know he was sort of popular and successful and you know, and he did. You know, like he became president of the United States. Like, there's no that is in the history books can't take it out i don't know that he had much in mind necessarily beyond that and i think that if if he had taken seriously a lot of the stuff that he ran on uh in terms of like in even like in terms of the stuff that i you know would find most unpleasant i mean he's basically governed as a conservative republican like in the classic sort of American sense of like cutting taxes and cutting regulations and, you know, like hitting some demagoguery points where needed. If he had governed as something that the country's basically never had, which is an overtly xenophobic Christian Democrat who did half of the, like, you know, protect social security, all the shit that he would sort of talk about,
0: mm.
1: you know, expanding health care. If he had done that, I think he would be in a very different political position. I just don't think he took it very seriously. Right. And I, think yeah, I mean, that's he was talking about with infrastructure.
0: He was talking about how he's going to rebuild America. I mean, imagine if he'd gotten into office and uh, you know had done a, had struck a deal with the Democrats to invest a trillion dollars in American infrastructure with and the Trump name emblazoned all over it, and they would have gone along with it, and that would have been a whole yeah. different alternative future. But he's probably canny enough to understand that he doesn't know anything about uh, policy, and he didn't want to be the head of, of government. He wanted to be the head of state. Right. It's just that your system in that has the same person there. You know, our head yeah. of state in Australia is still the Queen of England, so that shows you how much right. we care about the, the head of state. You know, the head of government is just a very prosaic thing; it doesn't have all the glitz about it. And he didn't want to be that. Yeah. And he I wanted think that to that's be the Saudi kind of, King.
1: Yeah, right. Because that's I think mostly the way that he the parts of the presidency that he seems interested in you know beyond the stuff that like has to do with him and like what people are saying about him and whatever is the ceremonial stuff it's it's wearing a tux and shaking hands and meeting important people and being impressed with them and then being impressed with him that's like that's been his whole life that's what he does you know or at least what he's done the last couple of of decades he's in the relationship business like most real estate developers and i think that that I don't know necessarily how that translates. I think as a figurehead for a political network, obviously he's got all of these people that are devoted to him, you know, tens of millions of people that hang on his every word, and they're not going to go away if he's not the president, you know, and so he'll keep doing his posts because they'll keep doing numbers. And I I think that's true, but like he's not really advocating for anything more than like more Trump in the monitors. I don't think he ever really has.
0: Mm. Well, David, it's been a wonderful conversation about American sport. Uh, and I thank you for your expertise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Happy <laughs> to it. break down the NBA playoffs <laughs> with you anytime, man. Are you thinking <laughs> of uh, Are you thinking of expanding this political uh, remit, given the response to your last few articles?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been...
0: It, it's something that I started doing, basically, As this is going to sound
1: super perverse, and while we're talking about silly, wokey language, uh, I started it as a sort of a self-care thing back in 2015, because it was so large in my mind that like i couldn't get my dumb baseball blogs out because i just had like this trump-sized occlusion in my brain that needed to be pushed out and i've done enough of it now that it's like part of the rhythm of of what you know i've been writing about this stuff for for years it's just a matter of trying to find a way uh to balance it with stuff that doesn't make me feel bad Mm. you know that like it's it's Hard. Like, I mean, I I like writing about sports. I like writing about, you know, movies and music and other things that make me happy. I mean, writing about politics, especially because I don't really have any. I mean, I have opinions, as you now know, but I also don't have much in the way of expertise, as you have also probably noticed. So it's just a matter of like trying to find a way to use it to make the other work better. You because know, I yeah, don't no, think that I, mean, I could I think, just I think you're selling
0: yourself short on the expertise, because I don't think you need to be a detailed policy uh, wonk to get. I mean, you almost remind me of Hannah Thompson or uh, or Matt Taibbi or something, where there's like a bigger. Uh, a, bigger moral sort of uh, um, perspective that you're able to to bring to it. And people can find that in uh, the two most recent articles uh, which brought David to my attention were entitled, Think of How Easy It Would Have Been for Donald Trump to Not Catch the Coronavirus, which was on October 2nd, uh, and another article called We're On to Cincinnati uh, on October 12th. Uh, I encourage everybody to read them. And if people happen to be interested in uh, this peculiar habit that you call sport, uh Where can they find you? You're, you're the co-host of a of a, a podcast called The Distraction, and True. they can read. And review... that is that is only
1: sort of about sports. uh It's okay. mostly about getting older and complaining about things. <laughs> so if if you're worried that it's going to be too heavy on the NFL, just know that we're okay. always going to be like, why do they even make parsley? Yeah, yeah. You know,
0: the, the Staller and Waldorf. The they don't make yeah. it. It grows.
1: <laughs> I know. Well, that's that's what I mean. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. But they. the um, and then the website is Defector and that's um, it's a subscription website, but it is not all sports stuff by any stretch. I mean, it's basically everybody that when we left uh, that's been, you know, like just sort of we wanted to work together and do something similar to what we did. So there's a lot of strange stuff about food. If we've covered the Nobel Prize stuff really uh, heavily for whatever reason. It's basically whatever weird extra non-sports shit we're interested in, we write about that too.
0: Fantastic. And that's your baby, basically. You're the editor and the and the co-owner.
1: Yeah, yeah, we're all co-owners. So it's a big, like, we're trying to, to start something sustainable and, and run it as a cash flow business. We're not trying to, you know, turn it into, you know, Defector Omnicorp Media Group LLC. <laughs>
0: Hey, the Fox News Cinematic Universe uh, awaits you if, you, uh, if you're if you really yeah. successful and unscrupulous.
1: I need to get myself some superhero branding
0: stat. At the yeah. very least, Like, just do more squats or something. That, do that and get some Ailes money. <laughs> get some Roger Ailes money. Without all the rapey stuff, just get the money, okay? Yeah, not, not right. The, not so, the right. It's so
1: much easier to enjoy it if yeah. you don't know for sure you're going to hell. <laughs> thank you, David. Great to talk Man, to you. Man, thank you. I appreciate it.